Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 256. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the Great Depression. We're going to be doing uh, the first part of the Great Depression. So just uh, give you a chance to get the PowerPoint up for the Great Depression. Uh, the PowerPoint's going to be for the next two lectures. I believe this is a three-lecture week. It's a three-lecture week, so yeah, you can deal with it. It'll be fine. So here you go, the Great Depression, early years, 1929 to 1932. Uh, let's talk about President Hoover. Uh, we, call, we talked last class about how Hoover was... Uh, was brought in in the twenty uh, sorry the nineteen twenty eight election called the great humanitarian one of our younger presidents hailed as the uh, the the boy wonder some of them called him uh, the boy wonder of of, uh, uh, of Herbert Hoover he was not particularly well liked by Calvin Coolidge um, a great quote Coolidge said about Herbert Hoover was basically he offered six years of unsolicited advice all of it bad. Uh, still, his ascension to the presidency was something that was generally well-liked by the country. Remember, Hoover was seen as like one of our smarter presidents, self-made man, very rich man. They thought maybe he could bring his business acumen to the presidency. Uh, the stock market is doing pretty well during this time period, uh, throughout the 20s, uh, thanks in large part to the uh, numerous tax breaks that were given to individuals that tended to make their way to the market. Uh, a lot of tax breaks were given this time to businesses, also to individuals, wealthier individuals were getting a lot of tax breaks. Uh, because the country was no longer at war, they felt the higher taxes weren't necessary. We'll talk in a second about why the market was not doing that great, even though it was very high. Uh, it was artificially inflated. The, the market was artificially high. It was artificially inflated. And even Herbert Hoover himself is kind of suspicious of this. Whenever he gets into office, he realizes, hey, the stock market's probably not doing that well. Um, it's high, but it might be artificially high. And so he quietly starts uh, telling his stockbroker to like start selling some stock. Uh, basically, by the time the Great Depression happens, Hoover's pretty much divested himself of the stock market. He realized something bad was about to happen, so he pretty much told his broker, hey, sell pretty much everything I have. If you go over one slide, you're going to see Herbert Hoover being inaugurated. Uh, there he is being inaugurated. If you look to the, uh, to the right of Herbert Hoover, you'll see Calvin Coolidge, who doesn't look too happy. But somebody who is kind of happy, if you go over to the left, that's William Howard Taft. Uh, fun fact about William Howard Taft. Uh, remember how he hated being president and he all he wanted to do was become uh, a Supreme Court justice instead? Uh, guess what? He finally got the chance. He became Supreme Court justice, actually became chief justice of the Supreme Court, and he actually lost like 150 pounds after he was president. Uh, apparently he lost a bunch of weight after he was president. Remember, he hated being president, so he lost a ton of weight. Uh, you can see right there he's swearing in Herbert Hoover to office, so that's one of those fun little things that happen is the president, you know, you have three presidents and one of whom is a uh, former president who's now a Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. This is the only time that's happened in U.S. history that a, a president has become Supreme Court Justice. Now, the market itself, as I said, it's very high, but it's very inflated. Uh, one of the reasons why it gets very high is because of buying on margin. Uh, buying on margin is pretty much when you borrow money to buy a stock. All right, This could be a good way to make a bunch of money, provided the stock goes up. Uh, theoretically, you borrow money uh, from a you know from a bank or from whoever, and whatever you know you make money in the stock market, uh, you sell it back, and you you've made more money like exponentially more money, and you don't owe as much. Theoretically, it's you get higher reward, but theoretically lesser risk. Um, that's not necessarily the case when the stock goes down. When the stock goes down, not only did you lose the money you get in, you also owe interest on the money you borrowed. So. 
Um, buying on the margin was seen as very common since stocks were going up, and pretty much everybody thought stocks could only go up. That's not what happens. And additionally, if a customer is uh, putting, if a consumer, I should say, is putting all their money in the stock market and it's not staying very liquid, major problems exist. Uh, when we talk about liquid assets, I'm going to talk a little bit about money in this class. So, hey, here we go. Telly's going to teach you about money. I can, I can get you, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to get you rich, but I can, I can help you out a little bit with money. I can make sure you, you know, you, you earn some money and you don't lose money. Uh, sometimes it's very important to be liquid. When we talk about liquid assets, that means like cash, like things that are easily transferable to dollars, like real hard currency. Uh, for instance, if you have a lot of money, money in the stock market, uh, you may not be very liquid because you have to like sell that stock and that stock has to have a buyer for you to get money back. All right? There's a difference between having $10,000 in stock versus $10,000 cash. You know, if you have $10,000 in stock, um, you know, it's, it's worth $10,000 provided somebody buys it. So it might be, you might only get like $9,500 out of that. And then, you know, you have to pay your broker fees. And it, it might take you a while to get the money in, in, in your cash. Uh, that, that being said, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a bunch of stock. However, if you're not very liquid, which most consumers weren't in this time period, there can be major problems. Uh, another thing that's actually going on this time period is there's a real estate bubble going on, too. Another reason why the 1920s were artificially high was because of this real estate bubble. There's a lot of different real estate bubbles going on. Y'all might be too young to remember this, but the uh, stock market crash of 2008 was done in large part because of the subprime mortgages. Uh, basically, it was a real estate bubble itself. Now, there's a lot of different places where this real estate bubble is going on. One of the big ones is Florida. One of the big ones is Florida. If you go over one slide, you're going to see one of these ads. Uh, this is an ad for Miami. Uh, Miami is a new city in this time period. Uh, Miami was not around during the Civil War. Uh, basically, in Florida, they start draining a lot of swamp lands in the south. Uh, Florida is very swampy in parts in the southern Florida. And they're draining it. They're trying to make new developments. Uh, some of them is legitimately good, but a lot of it is just straight-up swamp land that's being sold for far more than it's worth. Uh, Swampland is very hard land to build upon. Some of y'all might be around swamps, and you know that uh, you can just buy swampland really cheap because it's very hard to do anything with it. I mean, you can't really build anything on it. It's hard to farm. You might be able to do some hunting or fishing, perhaps, if you own swampland, but it's still pretty tough to do. They're selling a lot of real estate in Florida, a lot of swamp real estate that is uh, being sold for a lot more than it's actually worth. And also, people are buying this for investments. People are buying this for investment. Uh, generally, when you buy something for an investment, you're not really expecting to stay on it long term. You're not expecting to stay on it long term. You're basically hoping to keep on it for a while and then sell it to somebody else with a profit. Um, if there's so many of these, of these houses being produced, which actually happens, uh, they're building so many houses in Florida that there's more uh, supply than, than there is demand. Uh, According to like the iron laws of economics, if there's more supply than there is demand, the price is going to go down. It's no big deal if you're planning to live in this house. However, most of these people are buying these as investments. They're being marketed as investments. Um, if you look at the ad, for instance, this is an ad for Miami. You can see that it's being advertised as a very, you know, fun kind of, um, you know, it's you know, winter tourist season. You can stay there all day. You know, you, you know it, it's sunshine in the winter, you can play golf, you can hang out in your swimsuit, uh, this sort of thing. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see uh, 
fifteen dollars per acre uh, on this, you know, this, this on this bay, ten acres for one hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, makes like it seems wonderful. This wonderful land. It's it's actually swamp land. It's actually swamp land. Uh, not worth that much. I should mention that the boosters for Florida land get very creative in how they're trying to appeal to consumers. Um, probably most famously is the city of Coral Gables. Uh, Coral Gables is where the University of Miami is now. It's a it's a city outside of Miami. It's a city outside of Miami. Uh, theoretically, it's a suburb. It, it starts out as a housing development. And uh, they actually try to get a celebrity endorsement to say, hey, here's why you need to come to South Florida. Here's why you need to come to Coral Gables. There's a world-famous celebrity. You should come. And if you come, you can see him. You know who that celebrity is? That's right. William Jennings Bryan. Ha <laughs> ha, baby. You thought he died last class. This is actually we're still alive in the 20s. In fact, this is where he comes from before he goes to the trial in Dayton, Tennessee. He, he had been in Miami on Coral Gables. Uh, kind of acting as celebrity spokesperson for the town until he gets called up to do the trial. Uh, they advertise, for instance, like you could go to Sunday school with William Jennings Bryan. That was literally like one of the selling points. I wish I had one of their brochures, but one of the, one of the attributes of the brochure was, hey, if you live in Coral Gables on Sunday morning, you can come here, do William Jennings Bryan, do Sunday school. So there you go. If you go over one slide, you're going to see that there are signs that trouble is brewing, uh, but experts uh, really, you know, they, they kind of urge caution. They're like, yeah, nothing really bad's going to happen. Um, you know, there might be some issue, but, you know, there's no reason to do anything negative about it. Uh, for instance, an economics professor at Yale. So an economics professor, somebody who should know better, at Yale, a pretty good school. I mean, it's an Ivy League, for crying out loud. He said something which... Um, I'll just tell you what he said, then, then we'll break it down. He said, quote, stocks are on a permanent high plateau. All right, guys, let me level with you. If anybody says stocks are on a permanent high plateau or anything is on a permanent high plateau, they are lying to you, particularly when it comes to stocks. Uh, those of you who might be business majors right now are already shaking your head. That That is not how anything works. I mean, for instance... If anybody tells you like an investment is a guaranteed, you know, 4% every year return, that's a lie. It might be over time, but like you're going to have good years and you're going to have bad news. That's the nature of the stock market. It goes up and down, generally, you know, goes high in the long run. But let me iterate, a permanent high plateau is malarkey. Likewise, bank presidents also state that the public has no need to worry. A lot of per people are, you know, urging calm. They're saying, hey, there's nothing really that bad that's going to happen. If you go over one slide, though, you'll see that something bad does happen. Like I said, th this, this stock crash was pretty much inevitable. I mean, it was all built up because of, you know, really shaky foundations. No real way of saying that, um, you know, this is, <laughs> this was not going to happen. It was clearly going to happen. Um, you know, if you talk about Black Tuesday, that's October 29th, 1929. Uh, it started out as a slow and steady sell of stocks. Basically, it may, some even saw it as a correction. Uh, however, what really happened is that it accelerated after that point. It, it caused a panic. It caused a panic. Uh, that first day uh, was a pretty bad day. Uh, it had the worst day of its existence up to that point. Uh, $15 billion was lost on that day. And modern day money, that's several hundred billion dollars, was lost on one day. By the end of the month, about two days later, uh, $50 billion was lost. $50 billion was lost. In 1929 money, that's like half a trillion dollars. That's a lot of money. Uh, if you look at some of these charts, you'll see what happens with the stock market. You see the crash. 
Uh, the main thing I want you to realize is that the crash wasn't just 1929. It goes on for quite a while. It goes on for quite a while until you get into like 1932. That's when it really bottoms out is 1932. But it begins in 1929. Uh, gloom, I mean, if you go over one more slide, you're going to say, you know, Billions also stocks market crash. Uh, the gloom sets in almost immediately. Gloom sets in almost immediately. It has a rippling effect that spirals outward. Uh, even Groucho Marx, the famous comedian, states that, quote, life is no longer fun and games. There's also a whole slew of suicides. There's a whole slew of suicides. If you go over one side, you'll see one of these suicides. Uh, business owners, stockbrokers, other financial types. Uh, this is like almost immediately they... They're, they're so highly mortgaged. Remember, everybody's buying on credit, uh, buying stocks on credit. And, you know, if they lose all this money in the market, there's no way to pay people back. And since there's a stock market crash, people want to be paid back. And people feel like they can't get out of it. So, like I said, business owners, stockbrokers, other financial types, a lot of suicides. Uh, this continues on. This continues on. The thing I want you to realize, it wasn't just a one-day thing that happened. All right? It's, it's a long-lasting thing. By 1930, over 26,000 businesses close, even more close the next year. Uh, the whole country falls into recession. All right? So even if somebody doesn't own stocks in the stock market, which, by the way, most Americans don't own stocks in the stock market, even to this day. Even to this day, most Americans don't own stocks in the stock market. But what most people do have in some form or fashion is a job. Most people have a job. Most people have a job at a smaller business who is unable to weather this type of storm. So that's pretty bad when over like 26,000 businesses close. One of the reasons why they close is because banks close. Uh, by 1932, over 9,000 banks close. Uh, banks closing is very bad. It's not just because, hey, that's where you, know, you keep your money for safekeeping. That's also where people get loans for businesses and houses and things like that. One of the reasons why the Great Depression is so damaging isn't necessarily because of stock market crashing. It's because so many banks close. Now, the reason why the banks close is that a lot of them were invested in the stock market because it was viewed as a good investment. Um, thing about banks. You may not be familiar with banks. Uh, banks don't have all the money you have in there in cash. Does that make sense? Like, a bank doesn't have all the money that it has in deposits in cash. They loan it out. That's how they make money. You know, they loan it out to businesses. They loan it out to, like, you know, people buying a house, car loans, things like that. That's how banks make money. Um, they don't have every dollar in cash that they have in their accounts. That, that, that's not how a bank would work. And I should also iterate this again. It's very important to note. Uh, the stock market crash itself did not cause the Great Depression, Okay. Stock market crashing, it was bad, it, you know, it was maybe a, a correction, but that in and of itself did not cause the Great Depression. What caused the Great Depression was all the banks and businesses closing. That's what causes the Great Depression. And also, it shows, the, great, uh, the, uh, the stock market crash showed that the whole um, prosperity of the 1920s was really built upon nothing but shaky foundations. Uh, the 1920s being such a wonderful time period, everything seeming so wonderful, uh, it actually wasn't. There's a lot of shaky foundations. And to be honest, a lot of high finance is nothing but open air and promises. It's a lot of things that uh, may not necessarily occur because you are dealing so much with borrowed money and promissory notes. But still, the question is always comes back, why? Why did this happen? Why did the Great Depression happen? Well, go over one slide, you're going to see there were actually a lot of problems in the 1920s. The 1920s, even though they were really hailed as like this, this wonderful time period, uh, financial boom time, it actually really wasn't all that great. 
Um, honestly, in the most simple way to put it, it was a problem of overproduction and underconsumption. Uh, although production did indeed increase, consumer purchasing power did not. So there was more stuff to be purchased, but not more money to buy stuff with. That can be a real problem and not good for the long-term success of an economy. Likewise, when people did borrow money, or whenever people did have money, they did things like invest in the stock market, stock market which you know doesn't have a very liquid uh, environment. Not a particularly liquid environment going on in this time period. Uh, business, uh, there's also some business practices that really you know, uh, cause this problem to be exacerbated. Uh, for instance, they increase the profits by not giving raises to their employees. That's one way that a lot of these companies are able to make a lot of money is by simply not paying their employees more. So even though they're making more money, by keeping more of the money they get and not giving it over to their employees and raise salaries, you're able to keep this going. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you have the success of social welfare programs. I remember social welfare is whenever the company takes care of you, quote-unquote, rather than, you know, with other ways other than financial compensation. This, in turn, reduced the power and membership in unions, which is another reason for low wages. Uh, remember, in this time period, unions are not fully legal. I mean, they're, they're not fully legally rec- recognized. They're not technically illegal, but they're not really legally recognized as being a legit thing. Uh, another issue is, is frankly, uh, there was an unequal share of wealth in the 1920s. Although the 1920s was a very wealthy time for the country, not everybody had that. The, the gap between rich and poor, you know, who is rich and who is poor, was probably the greatest that's ever been in the country. In fact, it was even found out that in 1929, even before the Depression, about two-thirds of all families made less than $2,000 a year, which was deemed the bare uh, minimum for basic necessities, quote-unquote. In modern-day money, that's about $28,000 in modern-day money. Now, I bet you're wondering right now, like, oh my gosh, $28,000, that sounds like millions. I, I can be rich. Well, <laughs> if it's for, like, an entire family of four, $28,000 really does not go uh, very far whatsoever. Um, if you go over one slide, you're going to see, you know, one of, these, one of these poor families in the 1920s. Uh, another reason why this happens in the 20s is that uh, there was overexpansion during the farm level. Uh, there was overexpansion of farms, overexpansions of farms. Uh, basically, during World War I, uh, there was a lot of demand for farming. Remember, the United States was trying to feed the Allies. So to get more land that they could sell to the government, a lot of farmers were taking out mortgages to get more land that they could use to, you know, pay off. Uh, not pay off, but get paid by the government by selling more stuff because there was very high demand for meat, corn, other products like that. However, when the demand decreased, you know, when the demand decreased, the war's over, people aren't eating as much, um, you know, because they're not paying for a war, uh, prices fell, uh, prices fall. That is, that is the old law of, you know, the iron law of the economy. If, if there's more demand than there is supply, sorry, if there's more supply than there's demand, prices are going to go down. Prices fall down, but bills are still due. The bills are still due, and so farmers feel like they're quite trapped. They feel quite trapped. Ironically, this also hurt uh, farmers because they start growing even more stuff to try to pay the money the back, and basically that makes the price of things fall even further. Another issue is tariffs. Uh, tariffs, uh, something I used to have to explain to students, but thanks to the, this current administration, we're talking about tariffs a lot more, uh, tariffs in this time period, they were kept in place to help American goods and farmers, help American businesses and farmers. Uh, theoretically, a, a tariff keeps the price of a good artificially high and stops cheaper foreign imports. 
Uh, the way the way a tariff works is basically goods coming into the United States, they get a higher price, uh, artificially higher priced. This in turn makes American consumers more likely to buy American products, which is better for American companies. Now, interestingly enough, one of these tariffs was passed in 1930. It's called the Smoot-Harley Tariff. Uh, you can see right there the Smoot-Harley Tariff. It's signed in Herbert Hoover in 1930. Uh, theoretically, he said it was going to help farmers that were hurt by the Great Depression. It would cause there to be uh, foreign goods to be a higher tariff, so America's more likely to buy you know, goods from American farmers, American companies. Uh, ironically, this actually hurts farmers. This actually hurts American companies. Uh, because the foreign companies who were sorry, the foreign countries who were upset by the tariff started passing their own tariffs that made U.S. goods less likely to be, go into their own countries, less welcome. And so what ends up happening is farmers who like might have had an international market for their goods, they're now trapped out of the international market. It's even worse for them. If you go over one side, you're going to see you know the the, the Smoot Harley tariff. Uh, the GOP was seen as fighting against itself. Uh, basically, the GOP, the, uh, the Republicans were seen as fighting against themselves. You know, which constituents going to do that? Uh, and a, and the, another issue why this happens is interest rates. Another reason why the Great Depression uh, gets worse is interest rates. Um, inflation is something that happens whenever there's too much money in a supply. Basically, the price of dollars gets devalued. Uh, the Federal Reserve is basically trying to make sure that uh, you're not going to have inflation in this time period. They don't want to have inflation in this time period. Uh, that's something that might happen during an economic depression. The value gets delowered. And so they respond to this by basically they raise interest rates. They raise interest rates because they want to keep inflation down. Now, ironically, this backfires. Uh, this reduces the money supply and causes about 100, sorry, not 100, but 10,000 small banks to close between 1929 and 1932. Uh, for instance, if you even, if you watch the movie It's a Wonderful Life, uh, that's pretty much what happens to George Bailey's uh, housing and loan, his little bank that he has in It's a Wonderful Life, is basically the interest rates go up. This makes cash harder to come by. Banks close because of that. Remember, most banks don't have a full supply of cash. Also, I should mention, this really disproportionately hurts black and immigrant banks, uh, since those individuals were banned from using larger banks. Uh, the Great Depression disproportionately affects African Americans and immigrant groups. Chair Squeaky, I'm sorry. Uh, disproportionately hurts those groups because they're ones who are kept out of the rest of the government, rest of the American um, economy. So you have smaller banks who are even less likely to have the cash, able to keep up with their... Uh, with their deposits, this is a major problem. So, really hurts black and immigrant persons. And the other reason is Europe. Uh, Europe is also really hurt in this time period. Uh, Europe is really messed up from World War One. The economies of Europe had not really recovered. Pretty much nobody in Europe has money. Uh, nobody in Europe really has an economy. Nobody in Europe has much of anything because World War One destroyed everything. Um, France got destroyed, England got destroyed, uh, Germany was banned from really having an economy in this time period. And so you have this giant cycle of nobody really has money, also millions of people died, so they're trying to repopulate the countries. European economies are really screwed up. Uh, what ends up happening is like kind of this triangle of money. And this is something I normally do in class, but because of the pandemic, I really can't do it, so I have to explain it to you. But I want, to I want you to imagine that I have a nice, crisp $1 bill. I want you to imagine right now I have a $1 bill in front of me, and I represent the United States. The United States, remember, was one of the few countries, actually the only country, 
generally come out of the war better with an economy. Uh, this economy is doing better. They're the only ones with money. Now, all right, so there's me. I'm in the United States. I have, I have that nice dollar. And you know who really needs money? Germany. Germany needs money because Germany's not allowed to really have an economy. Germany's not allowed to have industry. Germany's not allowed to have a military. They have to pay tons of money back to the British and French and all these reparations. So basically, because America is the only people who have money, they start lending it to Germany for Germany to pay back France and England for all those reparations. So imagine I have that dollar. I give it to one of you. You're Germany. All right? So that dollar is now in Germany. Now, Germany owes a lot of money to England and France, and England and France give, you know, Germany gives that money to England and France. Now, here's the thing, though. England and France also owe a total of money to the United States. So that dollar comes back to me. And so, theoretically, that's all that's happening here is the same dollar is going round and round. Germans borrow money from the United States. They use that money to pay back France and England. France and England pays back the United States, who, in turn, uh, lets Germany borrow money. Now, imagine this goes through 20 times. Imagine this goes through 20 times. Theoretically, you've paid off $20, but it's not really $20. It's the same dollar going around 20 times. And when that dollar is removed, whenever the American economy is you know, kind of taken out by the Great Depression, this really hurts uh, Europe. Really, there's no more market or a source of cash in Europe after the Great Depression. Uh, Europe is also very much hurt by the Smoot-Harley tariff. Uh, so ironically, the Great Depression, even though it starts in the United States, it's actually significantly worse in Europe, like significantly worse in Europe. Now, the human toll of the Great Depression, go over one slide. Oh, by the way, that picture is a picture of Germany during the Great Depression. Uh, the human toll of the Great Depression, I mean, we're talking big countries right now. Uh, the human toll is just as bad. It's, it's very bad. It's long-lasting, very widespread. A lot of people are hurt by the Great Depression. Uh, by 1932, a quarter of the U.S. population could not afford either housing or food. Housing or food. That is bad. That is really bad. Uh, that's like the bare necessities. Is, you know, a roof over your head and something to eat. A quarter of the U.S. population can't even afford that. Uh, there is some talk of a communist revolt. Uh, even Theodore Bilbo of Mississippi. Theodore Bilbo is like the super populist, like, Fear, you know, just imagine like some sort of um, hypothetical, like super quote unquote patriotic candidate. Uh, you know, hurrah, hurrah, USA. Even billboards like Bilbo's like, yeah, we should, we might go communism. Uh, he makes allusions to it. Nothing ever really comes of it. Um, if the United States ever were to make a great radical change, we've talked in class quite a bit how the U.S. turns to, tends to be fairly lowercase c conservative. Um, you know, not very radical. If we ever were to go something really radical, if we ever were going to make a radical change in the country, it would have been during the Great Depression. But we never do. Because most people are just living their lives in a sense of helpless despair and submission. Uh, this idea that something really big has happened. Most people don't understand the stock market. Uh, most people weren't invested in the stock market. They didn't really understand what was going on. They just realized, hey, my, you know, the bank is closed. My job is gone. People feel that it's their fault. They're somehow at fault for it. Uh, this kind of this despair, submission, uh, feeling of hopelessness. Uh, the carefree optimism of the 1920s was straight up gone. Unemployment gets very high, uh, very high. In, in 1930, you have about 40 million people unemployed. By the time we get to 1932, um, it's about 12 million people. Very sizable percentage of the population is out of work. Uh, a lot of high prestige jobs have the courts. Uh, cut all sorts of corners to avoid the shame of going on relief. 
going on relief, taking assistance, taking public assistance was not seen as something that was honorable. It was seen as something disgraceful. It was seen as like basically you failed as a person if you have to take public relief. So even jobs like doctor. Actually, doctor is probably the best example. Uh, doctors aren't getting paid because people can't afford to go to the doctor. And so a lot of doctors in this time period, they were really not doing well because they don't have money. They don't have customers. But if you see your doctor in line in the soup kitchen, that might make you, you know, less inclined to go see that doctor. People generally like the feeling of their doctor being a fairly successful person financially. I really should mention this really hits the black community especially hard. Um, Unemployment numbers were significantly higher among African Americans as compared to white persons. Uh, For instance, in 1931, the unemployment rate among white male urban workers, so white male urban workers, was about 27%, uh, whereas their black counterparts were closer to 40%. Uh, Likewise, this was felt amongst female workers. Uh, White urban women who choose to work, who choose to work, um, that's... It was a thing in this time period. A lot of women chose not to work to raise children, but those women who did choose to work, their unemployment rate was generally around uh, 16.8%, so about 17% for white women. For black women who who chose to work, the unemployment rate was about 44%. 44%. So you're talking with massive unemployment numbers. That's for urban African Americans. Uh, Still felt the way, still felt that same way for rural African Americans. Um, remember, most rural African Americans in this time period are sharecroppers, de- dependent upon the sale of cotton. Uh, the price of cotton falls down to about six six cents a pound in 1933. Um, before the Depression, is about 18 cents a pound. I know that doesn't sound like a lot. Just think that the price of cotton falls down a third. It falls down to a third. All right. So basically, you're getting like a third of the money you're getting prior to that. Um, Sharecroppers were already not doing well before the Great Depression. Uh, very precarious. We talked about the cycle of debt they were in because pretty much you could never get ahead. Whenever uh, sharecroppers, basically the price goes down, they try to sell more crops. This makes the price go down even further. It really hurts African-American sharecroppers. If you look at these pictures, uh, for instance, there's a fairly famous picture of the high standard of the world, and then you have African-Americans in a soup kitchen line. Basically, you know, the kind of contrast between everything's going great. Um, if you go over one more, these are some sharecroppers in the Great Depression. These are some sharecroppers. If you go over one more slide, you'll see more sharecroppers. This is not like, you know, before the Civil War. This is 1930s Mississippi. And if you notice, it looks pretty similar to, like, slave times, the antebellum South. Um, it's not great for African Americans, particularly rural African Americans, uh, and urban African Americans, too. Like, the Great Depression was much significantly worse for African-Americans than it was for white persons. Now, I should also mention hunger was a big issue, too, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the human toll of us all. Uh, about one quarter of all children in 1932 suffer from malnutrition. Uh, malnutrition is not just missing a meal here or there. That's like serious malnutrition is a serious, serious, serious issue. It's a major problem. Major, major, major problem to have malnutrition because once a kid like goes hungry and like they're malnourished when they're a child, it doesn't get better. If you go over one slide, you will see some of these children um, in line at a, at a soup kitchen. Uh, rummaging through garbage becomes fairly common. Becomes fairly common, and that's also not a great way to have good nutrition. Like if you're digging food out of the garbage can, it might be rotten, or even if it isn't rotten, it's been in the garbage can, so it's been around God knows what. 
Uh, the ironic thing, it wasn't as though there was a lack of food. That's probably one of the things that's probably just the, the hardest thing to really, really understand about this, is that the Great Depression was not due to a lack of resources. It was, it was over and above resources. Remember, they produced too much. But the problem was it was just not financially viable to do it. Um, this next picture is probably one of the saddest pictures you're ever going to see. If you go over one slide, you're going to see stuff being poured from a truck. That is milk. That is milk. Uh, children are starving. There was milk to be had. It wasn't as though there wasn't food or milk for children. Milk was there. It just cost more money than the milk was worth to ship it. So ironically, in cities and stuff, children are starving. They are getting malnutrition. They are either dying or having you know, long-lasting physical problems because of malnutrition. There is milk available, but it was just so pricey to get it shipped to market that most farmers said, you know what, we're better off just dumping the milk rather than like giving it to people who are starving because it was just cost more money than it was worth to ship. That is probably one of the saddest pictures you're ever going to see. It's just they're pouring milk out. They're just pouring milk out because... There was just no money in it. Now, there's also homelessness goes up. Homelessness comes up. Um, the overproduction of the houses and a really bad real estate market make numerous of Americans homeless. Remember, it's not because there's a lack of houses. There's actually too many houses. It's just people get behind on their bills and, you know, banks need money. Banks need money because the banks are in a rough spot, too. So numerous of Americans go homeless in this time period. Lots of people become homeless in this time period. You start having the rise of shanty towns. Uh, shanty towns are sometimes they're called Hoovervilles. Uh, that's basically housing done, kind of almost like tents, where they just kind of throw up some shingles together. Doesn't have running water. Doesn't have electricity or utilities. Um, it becomes fairly common this time period. If you go over one more picture, you're going to see hobos. Hoboism becomes very common this time period. The idea of like you're going to start riding the rails, trying to find a job, trying to find something to do. Uh, a lot of these are veterans of the First World War. A lot of these are great war veterans who feel a sense of desperation. They feel a sense of desperation. They need to go off. They need to do their own thing. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see one of these hobo camps. Notice they're young men. They're trying to find jobs. If you go over one slide, you're going to see one of these shanty towns, one of these hobo towns. Well, not a hobo town, but a, a Hooverville. This is in Seattle. Now, ironically, well, ironically, these are people with jobs. This is the right side of a factory in Seattle. So these were the lucky ones. This was a lucky shanty town because these people had jobs. So you can tell people are being desperate. And when de with desperation, you know what come desperation comes with? Crime. Crime soars during the Great Depression. Crime soars during the Great Depression. Uh, the most common crime by far is robbery, theft. That, that should make sense. People are just stealing. People are stealing because they feel that they can't work or can't buy anything. Either they steal food or they steal money, or they steal whatever they can. Um, also, if you go over one slide, you're going to see another fairly common thing that happens. Uh, the, the second most common crime, the second most common crime is prostitution. Uh, these are prostitutes. These are women who, you know, this is where you get street walking or whatever. These are women who otherwise would not do this. These are not like, um, you know, prostitutes who are living in brothels or um, red light districts. They got rid of most of those. Uh, this is basically they feel like they're, they're desperate enough. That's all they have to do. Um, ironically, one of the things that goes down is divorces. The divorce rate actually goes down during the Great Depression, uh, not because there's a rise in family values. Um, it goes down because divorces are expensive. 
Pretty much, if a man divorces his wife during this time period, he is expected to pay alimony. But if he abandons her, he doesn't have to pay alimony because he just leaves. So divorce rates don't really... The divorce rates go down, but more people are just leaving their family. Also, uh, birth rates go way down. Um, birth rates go way down, uh, maybe because people decide against having kids when they don't have a job. Uh, the number one indicator about whether or not you're going to have kids, I mean, aside from, like, you know, biology stuff, like doing the thing that makes you have kids, but the number one reason why you're going to have kids or, like, you intend to have children is if you have a job. Uh, generally, people don't have kids if they don't feel they can pay for it. Now, what happens to the people who do have kids who feel like they can't care for them? Well, you can go over one more slide. You will see four children for sale. And you see the mom kind of covering her face out of the shame. It's the idea being that, hey, we can't afford these children. We need to give them up for adoption. Uh, ironically, that's still the most common form of adoption. It's not necessarily people who don't have children or single mothers or something. Uh, the most common people who actually uh, give up children for adoption are people who feel like they can't afford the children they already have. That's kind of what happens in this time period. Also, when it comes to immigration, for the first time in U.S. history, more people are leaving the country than they are coming to the country. You have more people leaving the country than immigrants. That's the first time ever in U.S. history. And you can tell the desperation is bad, and people are looking for guidance. People are leading, uh, looking for guidance. And, of course, they're looking towards Herbert Hoover, the great humanitarian Herbert Hoover. You know, he saved everybody a couple years earlier after the um, flood of 1927, so Hoover comes in. Uh, he, he personally thinks that the stock market crash was a self-needed correction. Remember, he saw early on that the stocks were like going above and beyond. He told his uh, accountant, let's get out of the stock market. Still, he urges the government to stay out of relief efforts, and he says aid agencies are going to cause dependence. He's like basically, hey, yes, it's okay to help people out now, but in the long run, we're going to have a federal government that has to pay for everybody for forever. If people aren't if people are gotten on relief, they are going to be less inclined to work in the long run. Although he's hailed as a great humanitarian, he totally stays out of this one. I remember he's known as a great humanitarian because of what happens in 1927. He stays out of this one. Uh, this causes gobs of resentment. Uh, gobs of resentment. People hate Hoover because of this. Uh, if you go one slide, you're going to see a fairly famous quote of him. Um, economic depression cannot be cured by legislative action or executive pronouncements, which is technically true. I mean, he is technically accurate. The Great Depression, you cannot legislate your way out of a depression. You cannot, like, just declare as a president that a Great Depression is over. But by not doing that, you kind of get seen as uncompassionate. So even though Hoover is theoretically correct, and I, I am not a Herbert Hoover apologist by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, technically, he is right. He, he is right. Like, the, the highs of the 1920s were kind of artificial. Um, you can't really legislate your way out of an economic downtime. You can make it worse, but you can't really make it better. Uh, so what does Herbert Hoover do? What does Herbert Hoover do? Uh, a couple things. I mean, it becomes pretty obvious he has to do something. So he kind of uses his office as a platform to let others solve the problems. He's like, as president, it's not my job to solve the issues. It's my job to empower the people who are going to solve the issues. So he'd do things like invite business leaders and labor leaders to the White House, where they, you know, he'd ask businesses to keep expanding, ask the labor unions to keep working. Uh, but he's not using a mandate or force. Like, these White House meetings are not legally binding. 
He's pretty much just getting people to come to the White House, you know, talk it over with management, talk it over with labor, but nothing is actually legally binding. He actually says, hey, you know, we should use this time because, you know, we, you know, we, we are built upon a freaky, shaky foundation. Let's make a better foundation. Uh, he does that by trying to balance the budget. He says, you know, we're doing too much deficit spending. We need to have a balanced budget. We need to, you know, make the federal government the right size. Now, there's two ways you can balance the budget. You can cut spending, which he does do somewhat, but the government was not that big in this time period. Or you could raise taxes. Uh, he raises taxes to balance the budget. This takes what little money there is out of consumers' pocket and makes recovery even slower. Now, once again, technically, that's a smart thing to do. You know, I mean, if, if your economy was built upon a shaky foundation, you know, having a balanced budget so that when the economy does come back, it's going to be better. That being said, though, it kind of doesn't go over very well at all. He also he fears socialism. Remember, there's a fear that if the U.S. goes um, communist, it's going to be during this time period. Uh, he fears that socialism might come because of these relief aid programs. He's afraid of over-dependence on people, by, so over-dependence on the federal government by the various people. So instead, he urges self-reliance. He says, you know, hey, Mr. American, you know, it's, it, it, it may not be your fault that you uh, lost this, uh, you know, you lost during the Great Depression, but only you alone can fix it. Only you alone can fix it. You should do that. Um, he also says to help out your fellow man, he calls upon the natural generosity of Americans. He says Americans are naturally generous, and there's nothing the federal government can't do that, you know, we, we the people can't do for ourselves. So he urges, like, you know, churches and civic associations to really, you know, take up the need. He says, you know your community's better, you know who's hurting better, you can help out a lot better than the federal government. Now, as I said, you know, is he theoretically correct? Sure, he's theoretically correct, but do you see how this comes off as very cold and uncaring? Because that's what happens once 1933 starts to loom. Uh, Democrats are beginning to make gains in Congress, in the midterms of the 1930s, uh, the Democrats start getting a lot more people elected. Uh, this is worrying Republicans. They're afraid that they might lose the presidency. They might lose their mandate. Remember, the United States tends to be a fairly uh, conservative country. And for quite a while, except for Woodrow Wilson, uh, the country was pretty much fairly Republican since, like, Reconstruction. Um, you've had very few Democratic presidents. I mean, you've had Cleveland and Wilson. That's about it. Most of the rest of them have been Republican. Uh, also, farmers are doing really bad. I should iterate that uh, farmers are doing very bad in the early 30s. I'm just going to tell you a very scary small number. Okay? The average income for farmers, all right, the average income for a farmer per year in the early 30s, per year, is $240. And today, money, that's about three grand. Right, about maybe thirty five hundred, maybe thirty five hundred, about you know between three or four grand a year. Uh, remember how we said that twenty eight thousand dollars a year is bad for a family. Uh, four, three to four thousand dollars is a lot worse. As we said earlier with the milk stuff, it costs a lot more money to bring stuff to market than it was worth, and a lot of people get really frustrated with this. Now, in the midst of all this. Probably the worst thing happens in terms of optics. The bonus army is what happens. This is probably the worst optics ever for Herbert Hoover. Uh, when we talk about optics and politics, it's the way that something looks. It may not be how something actually is, but the way it looks. 
And the optics for this one are terrible. Are terrible. Herbert Hoover looks super bad because of this one. Now, who are the bonus army? Are they an army? Well, they are veterans, okay? Uh, there's about 4 million veterans from various wars, mainly World War I. Uh, they're owed money for fighting in various wars. Uh, not a ton of money. It's done generally as a bond. I mean, theoretically, they can't collect the, the money for about 20 years. Uh, the time was not quite up for those 20 years since World War I. Uh, most of them were willing to take a smaller, more immediate amount. They're like, hey, we know we're owed you know, X amount of dollars later. Uh, we'll take a smaller amount now. It's not a ton of money. Uh, in modern money, it's about $10,000. So, like, you know, not, not, not a huge amount of money, but, like, if you're really in trouble, if you're in a bad situation, uh, you need that money. In fact, most of these people, they're not asking for their full $10,000 now. They understand it all can't be at the same time. Uh, however, Herbert Hoover refuses to do this. Herbert Hoover refuses to do it. He refuses to pay. He says it's going to raise taxes too much. Uh, these are, you know, military veterans. I mean, generally people like veterans, especially from a war, a foreign war. Hoover says, no, we're not going to do this. It's going to raise taxes too much. So in response to this, a group of about 10,000 veterans, their wives and children, uh, camp out in Washington, D.C., uh, just across the river from the Capitol. Uh, I think I got some pictures of it right there, if you go over a few slides. Uh, let's see. Yeah, you can see the camp. You can see the camp over there. Uh, the first picture is actually them on the steps of Congress. Uh, they're basically, you know, lobbying to try to get their, uh, try to get their money, try to get what they feel is owed to them. If you go over one side, you're going to see uh, their little camp that they set up. It's actually a fairly nice camp. It's pretty well organized. It's a kind of a shanty town, but also a camp. Very well organized. It has streets. It has sanitation facilities. Uh, regulatory military parades. Everybody there has to prove that they're like honorably discharged. Uh, you know, they actually did serve. They served with honor, served with distinction. They were owed the money. Very, very well kept together. Uh, like I said, they're doing things like like having parades, uh, kind of keeping up their drill element of it. You know, fairly popular. Uh, not fairly popular, but you know, just showing that they're a very sympathetic figure. Now, Hoover doesn't like this. Hoover does not think this looks very good. You know, he's like, I'm the president, and, you know, it, it, we're having all these soldiers here looking like, you know, we can't pay our money, we can't pay our dues. He says, you know, the dues aren't due yet. You know, it's not like we're skipping out on paying them. It's just not time for them to be paid yet. So Hoover decides he's going to do something about it. He decides to go to Congress and ask for some money to buy train tickets to get them all home. <laughs> he asks Congress for money to buy train tickets to get them all sent home. Uh, some do indeed leave. A few do stay, though. A few do stay. In fact, more of them stay than leave. Uh, they hope to meet with the president. They're like, look, we'll let the president talk to us to their face. Um, get, get, you know, let, let us know what's going on here. Let the president talk to us. He's a commander-in-chief. We want to hear from him. Maybe if he looked, looked us in the eye, he would he'd be more willing to, you know, listen to our demands. Uh, Hoover does not like this. Hoover instead orders the D.C. police to clear the federal areas. Basically, he sends in the cops. And if you see right there, that's one of the pictures uh, is of the cops starting to clear out this veteran camp. Um, that looks bad. Okay? Uh, you know, the idea of, you know, the D.C. police the federal government going against soldiers, going against veterans, that does not look bad. That does not look bad. Uh, the D.C. police ordered to clear these areas. 
Uh, remember, some of this part of D.C. is on federal land. Where they're camped out at is considered federal land. Yeah, they have federal jurisdiction over it. Uh, basically, the D.C. police are trying to clear out this. And the veterans are resisting them. Basically, one of the D.C. police gets scared. He panics, fires into the crowd a couple times with his firearm, kills two veterans. That looks bad. That looks really bad. Uh, you want to talk about terrible optics? That's bad optics. Bad optics is basically shooting into veterans. The Secretary of War, now Secretary of Defense, uh, sends in 700 soldiers uh, to remove the bonus army and then burn the shantytown. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see them starting to burn the shantytown. Go over one more, you're actually going to see them burning the shantytown. You'll be able to see the capital in the background. Go over one more picture, you'll see the shantytown burning with the uh, Washington Monument in the background. About 35 veterans are injured and 135 are arrested, all of whom are unarmed. All of whom are unarmed. The only time people die is whenever the cops fire into the crowd because of cop panics. Uh, this looks really bad for Hoover. I hope you understand. This looks horrible for Hoover. This is probably the worst that any president has ever looked, ever, uh, during this time period. And considering this is about a month or two before the election, uh, this pretty much shields the election for the, uh, against the Republicans. Because in 1932, the election of 1932 happens. Uh, Herbert Hoover does run again. Nobody is expecting anything whatsoever uh, because Hoover is very not popular. Nobody thinks Hoover's actually going to win. Uh, he gets very easily beaten by FDR. FDR has a very light campaign. Uh, he's pretty much just talking about confidence. He's talking about like theoretical stuff. Very little hard facts are there. Very little hard facts are being out there. Um, FDR is promising a new deal. He says, hey, Americans got dealt a bad hand. You know, we got dealt a bad hand of cards. But we're going to change into our new deal. Uh, this resonates with a lot of Americans who really want change. However, whenever FDR is asked, you know, what does this new deal entail? What are your specific programs? He gives them no answer. He's like, well, you, you, you got to find out after I get uh, elected president. Uh, like I said, this is not unusual in American history to be elected president with general vague promises. Um, it happens a lot. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not a partisan guy, but you know we could we could all name. Uh, I'll just do a few. Um, Law and order. That was what. Uh, that's what Richard Nixon used. Um, make, let's make America great again. That's what Ronald Reagan used. Uh, hope and change. That's what uh, Obama used. Uh, it's the economy, stupid. That's Bill Clinton. Uh, it's this idea that you can you can get elected president by kind of having a vague thing, and then once you get in office, you figure out exactly what it is. Uh, but, however, uh, Roosevelt's appeal to a new deal really resonates with a lot of Americans who want to change no matter what it looks like. I should also mention that um, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, is one of the first Democrats to really appeal towards African Americans, uh, particularly urban African Americans from the North, He's like, hey, um, you know, you've been voting Republicans since Reconstruction, if you can vote. Uh, what have they done for you? What have Republicans really done for you since Reconstruction? Maybe we'll change things over. Uh, if you go over one more slide, you're going to have some interesting stuff. Uh, I actually found some political cartoons, uh, so basically campaign signs for Hoover in 1932. If you see right there, there's vote for Hoover, don't change now, the idea that the country's in a really bad time, we shouldn't switch midstream. Uh, the dawn of victory, stand by your president, re-elect Herbert Hoover. You have Columbia there. Uh, not very popular. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see, you know, for a new deal, there's Franklin Roosevelt. 
Uh, he's ready, are you? We need action. The nation demands constructive leadership. Good luck, Roosevelt. Uh, my favorite one is this next one, just for the, the sheer po politics of it. The man with a heart. The party with a soul. Vote straight Democrat for all Roosevelt candidates. The idea being that, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, he's the guy with the heart. The Democrats are the one with the soul. Uh, that's just fantastic political pandering. So if you go over one slide, uh, you're going to be seeing the Great Depression, the New Deal years. All right? This is kind of a long one, so I'm splitting it up. Uh, the New Deal years. Uh, first thing we're going to talk about is Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt, his personality, well, he's a very distant cousin of, uh, Franklin, of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, they are fairly far, fairly distantly related. I mean, they're like 7th or 8th cousins, maybe 5th or 6th. Uh, far enough to know that they're not, like, close related, but close enough to know that, you know, they have the same last name. You have the uh, Oyster Bay Rockabell, sorry, the Oyster Bay Roosevelt's. That's Theodore's family. Then you have the um, Hyde Park Roosevelt's. That's Franklin's family. Um, fairly charmed life. You know, he starts out in a very rich family, very wealthy family. If you go over one slide, you'll see that there he is on the left. Uh, his mom used to dress in chill, uh, woman's clothing when he was a child. Uh, gets involved in New York politics fairly early. <clears throat> He's later appointed Secretary of the Navy by Woodrow Wilson. Uh, he lives a very charmed life. Very charmed life. Um, like I said, he's obsessed with his distant cousin Theodore. Uh, Theodore is a Republican. However, Franklin is a Democrat. Uh, now, Franklin needs to get a wife. He needs to get a, get a, you know, a wife, be married. Uh, in politics in this time, they expect for a man to be married if they're involved in politics. And so he's looking for a nice, good political marriage. And he's trying to find a, a decent you know, family to marry into, uh, really find a, a family that's ad advantageous for us. So, um, oh, wait, I need to tell you something else about Theodore Roosevelt real quick. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt had a brother. Theodore Roosevelt had a brother. Uh, Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt's brother was alcoholic. And uh, he died fairly young, complications from alcoholism. And so Theodore kind of raised his brother's daughters as his own. Basically, uh, his, whenever his brother died, Theodore had two daughters that uh, he kind of raised as his own. One of those daughters was a girl named Eleanor. That's right. Franklin Roosevelt's wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, let's just say she didn't have to change her name at the wedding. Uh, her maiden name was Roosevelt, and uh, when she got married, her last name was Roosevelt. Now, like I said, they are distant cousins. You know, they're fifth or sixth cousins. Um, her uncle is Theodore Roosevelt. In fact, Theodore Roosevelt uh, is the one who gives her away at her wedding. Um, he had just been uh, president. He'd just been not elected president, but he just, you know, assumed the position of president after McKinley was assassinated. Apparently, that was a, that was a big height for, uh, for Franklin. Uh, Eleanor would later complain about this. Eleanor would later complain about this. Uh, she said basically that she, you know, she wasn't the star at her own wedding. Um, now, uh, like I said, um, you know, he, he's living this very charmed life. Uh, there are two things that are covered up pretty much his entire time in politics. Uh, the first is in 1921, he gets polio. Uh, in 1921, he notices that he has polio. Uh, polio is a virus that pretty much destroys your muscles. Uh, this is hidden from the public his entire political career. Uh, pretty much the entire time he is president, he is paralyzed from the waist down. Now, this is something which is not talked about, like, ever. Uh, there's a gentleman's agreement, so-called, between the press and the president that they would not show Franklin Roosevelt in a wheelchair. Um, if you look right there, there's a picture of Franklin Roosevelt in a wheelchair. That's, like, right before his death. 
Um, basically, is to show the little girl. If you notice, the little girl has leg braces. Basically, to show her, like, you know, he's not ashamed of it. But through most of his life, he did not have a... Um, he was not open with the fact that he had polio. Uh, the other thing that is hidden from pretty much everybody is affairs. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt had multiple affairs pretty much the entire time he was um, in office, pretty much the entire time he was in politics. Uh, he was never particularly faithful to Eleanor. Um, pretty much he told her fairly on, you know, this is a political marriage. Uh, you're to be my partner in this. Uh, however, don't expect fidelity. Don't expect fidelity. Uh, she she kind of knew what was going on in this time period. Um, you know, her, her, her thought process was, you know, you do what you feel you have to do. I just don't want to see about it, and I don't want to hear about it. You know, I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear about it. Uh, for instance, there's a time wherever Franklin starts messing around with Eleanor's secretary. Eleanor's like, that's, that's too close. You know, as long as you keep it away from me, you know, don't, don't get into my immediate circle. Still, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, persona, he's known for being very optimistic. He is a very charming speaker. Uh, gets fairly popular through his quote-unquote fireside chats. Uh, they call it fireside chats, where he speaks on the radio, theoretically in front of a fireplace. He's not actually in front of a fireplace. Uh, but it's, it's done as very, you know, re uh, encouraging, very optimistic, uh, very popular with the general public. Basically, he does these regular radio broadcasts where he talks about what's going on in the country. I should mention, uh, Eleanor, if you go over one slide, you're going to see her speaking. She is a very unique first lady. Uh, she is our first modern first lady in the sense that she's really her husband's political partner. She's her, um, her husband's political ally. Uh, she's popular in her own right. Uh, she has a newspaper column the entire time. She's um, first lady. She's also more able to take stronger stands on issue that Franklin can't do. Uh, for instance, in particular, civil rights. Uh, she's very pro-African-American. She does a lot of stuff for African-Americans that regular members of the Democratic Party, by the way, remember the South, is predominantly Democrat in this time period. They're not really for that. She's able to do that. Uh, in times, people argue she's more popular than Franklin is. Now, remember, Franklin is elected under this whole idea of the New Deal. He's elected under this idea of the New Deal. Um... Remember when he's elected president, he's promising this new deal. He doesn't really have a plan going in. He's very cagey about the details during the campaign. Uh, however, once he gets president, he decides, you know what, I need to do something about that. And pretty much the main philosophy behind the new deal is we're going to, like, throw stuff against the wall and seize what sticks. It's a, it's a package of thousands of bills designed to end the Depression and help those in trouble, uh, this is also, at the time, the largest expansion of the government ever. Uh, generally throughout the United States history, the U.S. federal government has been fairly small, uh, fairly limited. This greatly expands upon it. Uh, the main interpretation about it, it's kind of a continuation of this idea of liberal reform, lowercase l, liberal, uh, liberal reform, things you start seeing under the progressive movement, things like that, the idea that the federal government should take more power and authority, uh, play more of a direct role in people's lives. Now, FDR's philosophy, he really doesn't have an underlying philosophy, just a desire to do things, uh, just a desire to, you know, try what works, uh, sorry, try anything, see what works, and if it works, keep doing it. Now, the New Deal, uh, the first New Deal has various, um, various elements of it. The first New Deal was what was done in 1933, 
Remember, he's elected president in 1932. 1932 is actually the worst year of the Depression. And basically, his first New Deal is designed to do three things, three things pretty much. And I am very much, uh, very, 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 very much uh, summarizing here, kind of going shorter in this. But there's a lot more programs than what I'll talk about. But let's just give you a basic idea. Uh, the first thing he wants to do is to restore faith in financial institutions. He's like, look, unless people start believing in banks again, as long as people don't believe that their money is safe in a bank, that the bank's going to lose their money, it's going to be a lot harder for things to recover. Remember, the stock market crash in of itself did not cause the Great Depression. Uh, what really caused the Great Depression was businesses closing and banks in particular closing. So basically, he wants customers, he wants the general public, John Q. Public, to feel more secure in the bank, to feel like they can trust the bank. So he has a couple things he does. The first one is a bank holiday. Uh, basically, he wants banks to close. A bank holiday is whenever, a bank, whenever a bank uh, takes a day off. And basically, banks have to stay closed until they can be um, examined by federal inspectors. A federal inspector is going to come in, examine the books, see if they are as good as they say. Uh, you know, see how much money they have in stock, uh, sorry, how much money they have in cash. Um, they have certain requirements that, you know, banks have to have a certain amount of money in cash for all their deposits. Uh, it's about 10%. Uh, a bank now has to have at least 10% in cash of all the money they have in deposits. So, for instance, if your bank has a million dollars in deposits, it has to have $100,000 cash lying around. Uh, this, this allows the bank to still do things like, you know, give out loans, uh, give out mortgages, business loans, things like that. And basically, you know, once the federal government uh, looks, checks out the books, feels that the bank is on, you know, solid footing, it will allow the bank to be re reopened again and people can come back to it. Now, another thing to help with the stock market element is the Security Exchange Commission, the SEC. Uh, not the Southeastern Conference, the Security Exchange Commission. It's actually still around. Uh, the Security Exchange Commission basically regulates stocks, basically makes sure companies are being honest with their stockholders. Um, you have to have like a certain number of meetings every year. You have to admit the number of stocks that's out there. Uh, give annual reports for stockholders. Uh, for instance, I own stock in a couple of companies. Every quarter, uh, the companies send me a report saying, like, you know, here's how much money we made, here's our profit, here's our overhead, that sort of thing. That's required by the SEC. Uh, pretty much to ensure that stocks are being legitimate. You know, a company can get in very big trouble with the SEC, and that could really, like, kill a business if they're not doing their stockholders correctly. Uh, another thing that he brings about in 1933 as part of this first new deal to help out the banks is the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Uh, you've heard this at the end of every single bank commercial you've ever heard your entire life. Uh, this phrase, member FDIC, this is what they are referring to. Now, what is the FDIC? Pretty much it ensures that money up to a certain amount of deposits, if the bank goes under, up to a certain amount of money will be guaranteed to be paid back by the government. Pretty much the federal government is putting its money where its mouth is. It's saying this bank is secure. You know, we believe in this bank, and if this bank does fail for some reason, up to a certain amount of money, you're, you know, it is protected. Um, at the time, it's fairly low. It's a few thousand dollars. I believe nowadays it's up to a quarter million dollars. So if you have up to a quarter million dollars in a bank, if the bank were to go under, the federal government is going to pay you back for that. This has done, not that they're really going to use it, but so that the federal government, um, 
you know, is showing that it has full faith in this bank. So these three things together, and there's some other ones too, but these are the three I want you to know about. Uh, there is more, you know, trust started to be put into banks. Uh, they're more put, put up into banks. Uh, the next thing he starts doing is he wants to end the economic downturn. You know, once they have, okay, we have the new foundation of banks back down, people are going to go back. We kind of need to stop the bleeding. We need to, like, put people back to work, make life better. Uh, the first one is the NRA, not the National Rifle Association. And by the way, get ready for alphabet soup because all these, like, New Deal agencies are, like, three-letter acronyms. Uh, the National Recovery Administration. It tries to get committees of, uh, make committees of, like, labor and owners kind of to come together, talk about different projects, uh, basically saying that, you know, we're, we're um, the, the federal government is theoretically giving a role to labor in this, uh, basically saying that certain shops are NRA shops, meaning they're, you know, they're on board with the federal government. This one doesn't last too long. It gets declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, which very, very much upsets FDR. Um, because it is, you know, the Constitution says nothing about, you know, the president doing anything like this or ensuring that certain businesses are protected under the, you know, that the U.S. government is, like, guaranteeing certain businesses like that or certain business practices. Uh, this one is overturned. It's probably the most famous one that gets overturned by the Supreme Court. A lot of these do get overturned by the Supreme Court for being unconstitutional. This one's probably the most well-known. The next one is the AAA, the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Uh, this is to help farmers. Uh, remember, farmers are going through a very hard time in this time period. Uh, there's oversupply. The price of crops has gone down significantly. Uh, this helps adjust, adjust crop prices. Uh, Agricultural Adjustment Act. Basically, by adjusting uh, the crop prices, agricultural prices, it wants to make it better. Uh, there are two ways you know you can do this. You could either you know basically the easiest way to reduce demand and to raise the price of something is to limit supply. And that's pretty much what this does. This pays what's called subsidies. This pays money to farmers for them not to grow something. Because, you know, let's say if you have five acres and the government says, hey, only grow on three acres and we're going to pay you money not to grow on two acres, there's going to be less stuff produced. Remember, one of the problems of the 1920s after the post-World War was overproduction. But now that you have lesser production, the prices are going to go up, which theoretically helps farmers. So basically it is paying farmers to, like, not produce something. Um, it also helps provide grants to buy mechanization, uh, to buy more like automatic combines, uh, harvesters, things like that. Uh, bi big machines. You, you might see that if any of your you have relatives or maybe you live on a farm. Uh, these big farm implements, which are quite large and quite expensive. Now, ironically, this one backfires against some of the poorest people, which are sharecroppers. Sharecroppers are very much screwed over by the AAA. Uh, this is one of the reasons why African Americans feel betrayed by Franklin Roosevelt, is because sharecroppers, um, you know, it, it, they don't own the land, and pretty much if so, if a landowner is being paid not to grow something and they have sharecroppers, the first thing they're going to cut is the sharecroppers, and sharecroppers only get paid if they grow something, and most landowners were not sharing their government money with the uh, sharecroppers. Likewise, if you have a mechanical harvester or anything, you also don't need. Um, Sharecroppers. Uh, sharecroppers are done because, you know, the amount of land you have is too much to harvest by yourself. But now thanks to these large instruments like tractors and whatnot, uh, one person is able to, like, plow a much larger and, you know, harvest and farm a much larger portion of land. Uh, another thing that comes with the economic downturn is, to, to reverse it, is the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority. 
Uh, this is trying to help out people in some of the poorest areas of, uh, of Appalachia, particularly around the Tennessee River. Uh, the Tennessee River is primarily in Tennessee, but also it's in like northern Alabama, that area. Um, it has a very bad habit of flooding regularly. It has a very bad habit of flooding regularly. So the TVA was going to build a dam, build a you know build some dams, actually a series of dams, to help control the flooding. If you you know if you have dams of a river, you can help control it, the river. You can prevent it from flooding. But another thing, if you have dams, is you can create electricity. It's very easy to make electricity with dams, hydroelectric dams, hydroelectric electricity. Uh, this is going to give electricity to parts of the Tennessee Valley, some of the poorest parts of the country that don't have electricity. Basically, it subsidizes electricity for people living in these areas, helps them live better, also provides jobs. This one's still pretty popular. Um, if you ever go to like Tennessee, there's still TVA dams all over the place. It also inadvertently helps uh, invent whitewater rafting as we know it. Uh, like the Ecoe and some of the other big whitewater rafting rivers, they're uh, TVA rivers because you can turn them on and off and you can kind of control the flow. So that's something that's very popular for whitewater rafting. Uh, the final part of the first New Deal is direct relief to individuals. Direct relief to individuals. Um, a couple of these programs, basically, this is something the federal government has never done before. Uh, one of the big ones they do is food for the poor and federal grants. Remember how we said that you know one quarter of all the children in the United States were starving, you know, with malnutrition, not just missing a meal, but like serious medical malnutrition. Uh, basically, and remember, there was plenty of supply. You know, the farmers were literally dumping out their milk. Uh, this basically is some of our first food stamps, do you ever want to call it? Basically, it's giving federal grants uh, to states to use to buy food for those who need it. Uh, this is a step that Hoover was unwilling to take. He said basically this is going to cause long-term dependency. However, Franklin Roosevelt is like, it doesn't make sense for us to you know take milk from the mouths of children, especially when there's ample milk. There's plenty of milk. There's milk to spare. But basically, it gives federal government money to... Uh, give to the states so they could use to buy from farmers. Now, this also helps farmers uh, because now that you're having a big supply, um, something you still seen to this day in a lot of places is like for the school lunch program, uh, a lot of times they try to get their vegetables and other elements from local farmers. It's a, it's a fairly good, um, you know, it's a good program. The farmers have a consistent customer and the children get food. It helps the economy, something that's fairly popular. Uh, another one that, that uh, really helps out individuals directly is the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. Uh, this makes jobs. This gives jobs to young men. Um, they're, they're, they're in the naturalist thing. Uh, they're, they're very much like a foresty thing. Basically, you know, telling young men from cities, hey, we're going to go out, you're going to live on a camp, uh, you're going you know, to work in these forester areas. They do things like build parks. They, uh, they build trails, things like that. Uh, for instance, whenever I was a very small child, we lived in Arkansas for a while and uh, in Little Rock, and our house was right north of one of these TVA uh, parks. You know, Granted, there's nobody living there. It's you know, it from the Great Depression. It was built 50 years prior or whatever. But um, it, it was a very nice park, and like, you know, they have the, TVA, uh, the, sorry, the Civilian Conservation Corps logo all over the place. Uh, likewise, my wife's godmother, she lives in Richmond, right next to one of these parks. It's a huge park. It's a gorgeous park. And you can see the, um, the actual camps, actual some of the cabins that the TVA, of the TVA, the CCC, Civilian Conservation Corps, used. Uh, they are still there. For the first time, the federal government is giving people jobs. That, that's a big change. Like, yes, I know people have always worked for the federal government, you know, in D.C., you know, the 
State Department or something. But now it's like the federal government is going to give you a job where you are. A lot of times they're really going for young men who are living in cities, uh, men who have like parents. Uh, generally, these are men between the ages of like 18 to 24, very much seen as a predecessor to World War II mobilization because it was run by the Army, hence the term Corps. Um, it's a, this idea that the uh, government, the federal government, will become the employer of last resort. And if you go over one picture, one slide, you're going to see a picture of these dudes. Uh, they're from cities. Uh, for every dollar they make, they're expected to send 75 cents back home. So basically, you know, they, they're sending three quarters of their wages to their parents. Um, not quite a welfare program, quote unquote, but it's this idea that these uh, young men who were otherwise, you know, of working age are going to do something and mainly support their elderly parents. Now, if you notice something about all these guys, they are white. That is another source of contention for a lot of people. Only white men are allowed in the Civilian Conservation Corps. African Americans and other, um, other ethnicities, other races were not allowed in the Corps. Uh, the final one is the FHA. The FHA, the Federal Housing Authority. It makes it much easier to buy a house. Uh, basically, it says the government is going to start guaranteeing some mortgages, makes banks more willing to have mortgages. Uh, this totally changes the mortgage as we know it. Uh, before this time, most mortgages were five-year. They're five years with a balloon payment at the end. Uh, it was very difficult for a person to get a mortgage because they were very expensive. A lot of people didn't have houses. The FHA totally changes mortgages. Uh, they make it like a 15 or 30-year mortgage, a 15 to 30-year mortgage. Interest rates go way down. Down payments go way down. Uh, banks start making loans again because, you know, the federal government's saying, hey, if a house meets these certain requirements, you can buy it. Uh, the, like I said, the houses have to have certain requirements, uh, particularly when in terms of utilities. Uh, the FHA mandates that, like, a house has to have, like, um, certain utilities, like, uh, you know, running water, electricity, uh, sewage, things like that. Because remember, the federal government is guaranteeing this loan, and a, a house that has all these moderate amenities is the best likely to retain its value should the federal government have to buy it back and sell it and hopefully make some money off of it. Uh, this totally changes a lot in America, particularly when it comes to home buying. Uh, certain areas are deemed acceptable or less acceptable for federal housing. Uh, this is another thing that kind of screws over African Americans because pretty much you have this process known as redlining where basically the federal government will go through a city and kind of color code the neighborhoods that are deemed uh, worthy or unworthy of these guaranteed mortgages, what are the ones that are seen as most likely or least likely to retain their value. And by and large, and when I say by and large, it's pretty much straightforward. Um, what ends up happening is African-American, predominantly African-American areas, even in northern cities, are deemed to be what's called red, they get the red code, which is the less, the least uh, desirable. And this process is known as redlining because it's kind of a cyclical cycle. It makes bad neighborhoods even worse and uh, you know, keeps good neighborhoods even better uh, because home values are generally tied to things like uh, property taxes, and that's very much tied to services and things like that. This is also the federal government saying that everybody should have basic standards of living that the federal government is really going to provide if need be. So all three of those are pretty much saying the federal government is going to feed you, it's going to give you a job, and it's going to help you get a house or get you a house that has a certain standard. 
Now, a lot of people don't like this. A lot of people don't like this because it's the federal government getting involved in things that they've never been involved with before. Also, the federal government is very much spending in a deficit. They're very much deficit spending. Uh, they are pretty much borrowing money with the assumption that things are going to get better once we do this. Uh, theoretically, FDR is spending money that he doesn't have. This upsets a lot of people. Because there is a lot of opposition to the New Deal. Uh, for instance, from the Supreme Court. Supreme Court has a lot of people who don't like FDR. Remember, we've had a lot of Republican uh, presidents this time period. In fact, as I speak this right now, uh, there's a lot of talk right now about uh, appointing a new Supreme Court justice. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg just passed away this past week. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, are they going to replace the justice before or after the election? And there's a lot of talk about, like, you know, does uh, who whoever nominates a Supreme Court justice, is that, like, show their political leaning of the justice themselves? Remember, Supreme Court justices have a lifetime appointment, and theoretically they're above partisanship, but sometimes they kind of stay in a certain vein. Uh, this does change quite a bit. There have been plenty of Supreme Court justices who've changed their uh, kind of political persuasion or become more conservative or more liberal as soon as they get on the bench. But still, that's being done. Uh, the Supreme Court strikes down a lot of New Deal programs for being unconstitutional, most notably the NRA. Um, it is unconstitutional. Like, there's nothing in the Constitution for any of this stuff. But basically, FDR is arguing that it's a time of crisis, it's a time of emergency, it's worth doing it. Um, FDR responds to all this by saying, hey, you know what, you know, the Supreme Court has only had seven justices, or sorry, nine justices since uh, the country began. They're overworked. Uh, we should appoint some more justices. Let's appoint, I don't know, what's a good number? Let's appoint six more justices. Let's appoint six more justices. That's going to be, you know, more people on the, on the Supreme Court. It's going to help us all out. Uh, it'll help balance the caseload. Uh, this would theoretically give FDR six more Supreme Court justices. This was struck down almost immediately as being overly political. Um, there's talk right now about, you know, maybe adding some more justices. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, the Senate can decide to do that. Uh, we'll see what happens. I don't think they will because we've had nine justices pretty much the entire history of the country. Now, uh, FDR is also getting a lot of attacks from the right. Uh, a lot of Republicans do not like the New Deal. They believe it is un-American. They believe it's un-American. Um, you know, this makes sense because FDR is a Democrat. They're Republican. They're, they're natural adversaries. Uh, business in general is opposed to the New Deal. They think it's basically, you know, you're getting the federal government involved in a place that we simply cannot compete you know, how can, a, how can a business compete with the federal government if they're both trying to provide the same thing? Uh, you know, how, how can a business compete with electricity, for instance, whenever the TVA is doing that? How can a business compete with the Federal Housing Authority? You know, how can, we, how can we compete with all these things? The federal government is too big. We don't like this. Also, Republicans, in general, are very much opposed to deficit spending. They don't like the idea of spending money we don't necessarily have. And that's one thing that they do not care for. Now, there is some more radical opposition to them. Um, in particular, you have Father Coughlin. If you have one more slide, you're going to see a picture of Father Coughlin. Uh, Father Coughlin, as his name implies, is a Catholic priest. Uh, he's a priest from Detroit. His radio program gets very popular. Uh, he starts out as a radio priest, uh, starts just you know doing mass over the radio. Um, based in the Midwest, you know, around like Detroit, I believe. Well, yeah, I just said he's from Detroit. Based from Detroit, um, eventually his audience gets to about a third of the population. This is not saying a third of the um, a third of the population is Catholic or anything like that, 
But basically, he has a very wide reach outside of just Catholics. Um, he kind of becomes the voice of conservative America for a while. Um, he, you know, he starts attacking the New Deal, saying it's not really biblical, it, it's not really American, he claims. It kind of goes against a lot of different things. Uh, even though he starts out fairly you know, religious-based, over time, pretty much, I don't want to say he gets rid of religion, but he talks a lot more about politics. Uh, then he goes a bit further. <laughs> uh, he says of the New Deal, sorry, the Great Depression was caused by, quote, a great international Jewish banking conspiracy. Um, that is not too unusual in the United States in this time period. This is not me saying anything bad about Catholic priests. Catholic priests are fine people. I'm just saying, um, anti-Semitism in general was pretty common in the United States in this time period, particularly around Detroit. I mean, Henry Ford was super anti-Semitic. Um, Henry Ford and anti-Semitism go, go a lot together. And there is kind of a general trust of Jews in the United States in general in this time period. Uh, Anti-Semitism is a very well-known thing in the United States in this time period. Not just amongst Catholics, it's amongst everybody. Uh, A lot of folks are against Jewish people in this time period. A lot of conspiracies about Jewish people being involved in banking in this time period. Uh, He also claims that, you know, even though FDR is not Jewish, he's a pawn in this Jewish conspiracy. Uh, that's clearly signs that he's, he's gone a bit too far. That's something that's really not biblical, per se. Uh, you know, this is not something a normal priest would do. Uh, some would argue that Father Coughlin kind of gets, um, kind of goes a bit crazy, kind of, I don't want to say drunk on his own power, but the fame kind of gets to him a little bit. Uh, he, he decides he's going to run for president. He's like, you know, I, I'm the one who should run for president. I'm going to make my own third party. Uh, we're going to run for president, kind of, you know, make America a better country, a more religious country. Uh, that doesn't really go too well. Um, he's ultimately taken off the air, though, uh, for praising a guy who also doesn't like Jews very much, dude by the name of Adolf Hitler. He's like, yeah, that Hitler guy, he, he's got a lot of great ideas. Now, that's a that's a step too far, even for Americans in this time period, by the time we get to the late 30s. Um, a lot of folks are not fans of Hitler for uh, pretty obvious reasons, because like he's literally Hitler. Like literally, Hitler is Hitler. Um, also, people do not know entirely about the Holocaust in this time period. We'll talk about that more when we get into World War II. Uh, that's something that is uh, they they know Hitler doesn't like Jews, but they don't know about like the mass executions. Um, so that's ultimately what gets Father Coughlin taken off the air is the fact that he starts praising Hitler for being you know not great to the Jews. Like I said, that's a much more extreme example. Somebody from the right, he's not representative of people on the right who oppose Roosevelt. Most people on the right who oppose Roosevelt oppose him because he's spending too much money, frankly. Um, Now, from the left, ironically, Franklin Roosevelt is getting attacks from the left. Probably the best-known attack from the left, the guy, you know, who you've probably heard of is Huey Long. Huey Long is governor of Louisiana in this time period. Uh, Later, he's senator from Louisiana. He's later senator from Louisiana. And he's very much a populist. Uh, Huey Long is probably the best pure example of populism we've ever had in the United States. Uh, basically, you know, he, he's a guy for, for the people. Uh, you know, he speaks for the little guy, supposedly. Uh, comes from Wynn Parish, Winfield, Louisiana. That's kind of North Louisiana. One of our first North Louisiana governors. You know, he's like, I'm, I'm born white trash. Uh, he's not Cajun. He's, you know, he's white. He is, he's poor. Um, he, let's see, he goes to Tulane for like a semester and then he passes the bar 
without just he just reads for a couple months and then he's able to pass the you know pass the bar be accepted into the Louisiana bar without even going to law school. Uh, starts out as like the Louisiana like uh, commissioner, uh, the, the, it's like the oil commissioner, the train commissioner, basically really taking it to the oil companies for a while. Uh, really taking to the oil companies. He basically saying the oil companies are like taking so much money out of Louisiana, they need to pay their fair share of taxes. Later becomes senator, uh, very charismatic figure, very popular within the state. Uh, he does things like um, you know he he lets school children you know get books, free textbooks, builds a lot of bridges, builds a lot of roads. Um, he's not racist for the time period. Like if you read his stuff, he's he's racist. For now, but at the time period, he actually courts some of the black vote, or not the black black people weren't allowed to vote. But he's not like overtly antagonistic towards uh, towards African Americans. Like he's against the Klan, which is unique in this time period. He says, you know, the Klan hate poor poor people like me. They hate white trash just like me. Um, his big plan, remember, he is attacking FDR from the left. He says the New Deal doesn't go far enough. It's not socialist enough. It's not communal enough. Uh, his big program is called the Share Our Wealth Program, the, shell, the Share Our Wealth Plan. Basically, Huey Long says um, everybody is guaranteed a certain income. Everybody in the United States is guaranteed a certain income by being American. Uh, everybody gets a basic wage. Uh, you can call it universal basic income, pretty much something like that. You know, he's like, you know, chicken in every pot type of thing. Everybody's going to you know, be able to afford meat. Uh, the way he's going to pay for it is that any income over $3 million is going to be taxed at 100%. What do I mean by 100% tax? All of it. You cannot have more than $3 million in income in any given year if you're a person. And he says, basically, by taking all this money, we're going to make sure that the rich people have some, but the poor people get some too. Now, the economics of this do not work, period. There are not enough millionaires in the United States to make this work, even if there were enough millionaires... Uh, the math just does not work, it, it, but that's not really the point. The point of it is basically getting attention, uh, getting votes, becoming very popular, making this populist argument, and that's very much Huey Long. He claims that eight million members, say, sorry, eight million Americans are members of the "quote unquote" share our wealth clubs around the country. Uh, those numbers are very, very much inflated. Um, Huey Long is a very charismatic figure. He's seen as FDR's biggest challenge from the left. Uh, he's talking about challenging FDR for the presidency in 1936. That ultimately does not happen because Huey Long is assassinated. Uh, Huey Long is assassinated actually in the state capitol he helped build. Uh, if you go to Baton Rouge, the very tall state capitol, uh, that is what Huey Long built. That was kind of his projects to keep people at work during the Great Depression. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the few skyscraper state capitals out there in the country. Uh, some claims it's a middle finger to, to, to Washington because it faces south and you know, like a middle finger or something, I suppose. Uh, basically, this time period, Huey Long is U.S. Senator from Louisiana, but he's also pretty much the de facto governor. Uh, he's in a session. He's basically in the House. He's in the House for the Louisiana, Louisiana State House. Uh, he's basically leaving with his bodyguards. He's going around back. Uh, basically, the, the, the son-in-law of one of his political rivals, who he accused of being uh, all sorts of things, basically a son-in-law, a doctor, pulls out a gun to shoot Huey Long. Uh, Huey Long has bodyguards with Tommy guns, who might be a little too uh, overzealous, shall we say. Uh, the doctor is shot and killed almost instantly. Huey Long is hit several times by bullets. Um, 
they claim the doctor shot him, but in actuality, it was overzealous bodyguards who got him several times with Tommy guns. Um, if you go to the state capitol, you can still see the bullet holes in the walls where Huey Long was shot. Uh, when I was a kid, you were actually allowed to stick your finger in the holes, but they were like, that's just a little too gruesome. Uh, when Huey Long dies, that's pretty much uh, Roosevelt's biggest challenger. After Huey Long dies, um, but before the 36th election, uh, Roosevelt puts in what's called the Second New Deal. It's called the Second New Deal. Uh, some more programs, basically, you saw what worked. Kind of expands it a little bit more. Uh, for instance, the TVA was so successful, he brings in the REA, the Rural Electrification Act. Uh, brings more electricity to farmers and the like. Also subsidizes power companies to bring more power to rural areas. Uh, to employ more people, like the Civilian Conservation Corps, they have the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. Uh, this hires people from all sorts of different areas to do projects for the government. A uh, lot of internal improvements, a lot of uh, projects. Uh, for instance, uh, pretty much any courthouse in this time period was built during by the WPA. If you go to some older towns, that was a fairly popular WPA program, was building a courthouse. You know, you could employ people to do that. Uh, they hire, like, artists to draw, like, murals in these courthouses. Uh, they hire historians to do, like, local histories. Uh, a fairly well-known one is they do the slave narratives. Basically, they interview people who are very old in this time period, who were slaves during the slave times, kind of get their first-hand accounts of what slavery was like. Uh, for instance, whenever I was at LSU, the building where I had my office, Himes Hall, if you go down to the front lobby, you'll see that it was a WPA building. Uh, another thing, probably the most popular of all FDR's programs, is Social Security. Uh, this provides money for retired or people who are otherwise not working, uh, the idea being that basically if old people are given a guaranteed income, uh, they're inclined not to work, that's going to open up jobs for younger people. This was designed to protect elderly Americans, the unemployed, and the disabled. Uh, for instance, uh, growing up, uh, both my parents taught the visually impaired. Pretty much everybody I knew growing up was visually impaired. Um, SSI is a form of uh, social security for them. Basically, it gives them an income if they're unable to have a job. A uh, good number of visually impaired people and other disabled people get this. Like I said, this becomes the most popular of all the New Deal programs. Uh, this is called now the third rail, of, third rail of U.S. politics. Pretty much you touch it and you die. Uh, you touch it and you die. Uh, politically. Like, everybody likes Social Security. Finally, you have the National Labor Relations Board, the, NL, the NLRB. Uh, this changes the government's stance on unions. For the first time, unions are like federally protected. Uh, this makes the government a lot more buddy-buddy with unions, saying they have a right to exist. Uh, union membership goes through the roof. Uh, union membership goes through the roof in general after this. Uh, pretty much from this point until we get into like the 70s and 80s, union membership is at an all-time high within the United States, mainly because the federal government is saying it's allowed to exist. You also have the CIO come into existence. Uh, the CIO comes into existence... The CIO is akin to the American Federation of Labor. It's the, however, it is for unskilled labor. Eventually, the two are going to merge. Uh, the 1936 election, if you talk about it, it's a walk. It's pretty easy. I'm not even going to tell you who Roosevelt goes up against. He blows it out of the water. Uh, he's very popular, has loads of momentum. Uh, insanely popular, insanely popular. Uh, in Roosevelt's second term, he doesn't do all that much that's very new, 
Uh, this is when he gets into trouble for trying to stuff the Supreme Court with all of his own new justices. Uh, however, one thing that does happen, uh, the South, which is solidly Democrat, uh, they don't like a lot of the New Deal things, particularly because they say it helps give relief to African Americans, as we talked about. That's kind of a problematic claim. A lot of African Americans get nothing from the New Deal. So some, some Southern congressmen are starting to turn against the New Deal, starting to turn against uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, also in 36, a small recession occurs, and FDR is spending even more in a deficit that makes a lot of Republicans upset. Uh, still, in general, though, uh, the looming war, uh, even by 36, they realize a new world war is probably going to happen. Uh, that seems more important than the New Deal. Two that I do want to talk about, though, are the uh, federal housing projects and the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, the federal housing projects is now the federal government is going to straight up build houses. Uh, the FHA, like, protected a mortgage. Now, basically, the federal housing projects are saying, hey, we will make you something. We are going to make you a housing project. It's basically Section 8, whatever you want to call it, housing. It says if you're super poor, if you can't get a house other, otherwise, the federal government is going to make this. Uh, the, the Fair Labor Standards Act says basically here is the way that you have to work. Uh, the big thing this makes is minimum wage. This says no longer can a company decide what it's going to pay its workers. Uh, the minimum wage is basically what they view is the minimum amount of money needed to uh, have a livable existence. Now, do these end the Great Depression? That's no. Um, the New Deal does not end the Great Depression. You might have heard something like that. That does not end the, new, end the Great Depression. Just like the Great Depression is not caused by the stock market crash, what causes the stock market crash is the closure of businesses, particularly banks. Uh, the New Deal does not end the Great Depression. The Great Depression is ended by spending for World War II. Um, even before the U.S. gets physically involved in World War II in 1941, even by like 1940, 1939, spending for World War II, you know, spending and building stuff for the Allies is what really gets us out of the Great Depression. But the New Deal still has merits. It makes the Great Depression tolerable, if that makes sense. It doesn't solve it, it makes it tolerable. In particular, it doesn't fundamentally change capitalism. Like I've mentioned before, if the U.S. was ever going to go um, communist or make a drastic change for our governmental system, it would have been during the Great Depression. Uh, the New Deal makes sure, ironically, even though its detractors say that it's not against capitalism, it actually reaffirms faith in capitalism. It restores faith in the American system. The New Deal also makes the government the last resort for basic standards of living. Uh, for instance... Yeah, a place to, you know, we're going to help get you food, a job, and a place to live. And we're also going to guarantee utilities so you can get electricity. Something the federal government has never done before. Uh, the basic characteristics of the New Deal, four things I want you to know about very briefly. Number one, it gives a new role for organized labor. For the first time, unions are deemed acceptable and necessary within the United States. They are given federal protection. The second, as I mentioned before, the government is ensuring basic standards, basic standards of living, basic standards of food, something that had never really been done before. The third thing, the government is doing a lot more intervention in the economy, a lot more direct intervention in the economy, whereas before, the federal government was uh, very content to be laissez-faire. And finally, the government is ensuring mass consumption. Um, we're going to talk about this more when we talk about the end of World War II once we get into the 50s. But the U.S. has really shown that it is being a consumer-centric society, 
And the federal government, for everything it's doing in 1932, and the, sorry, in the 30s during the Depressions, is to ensure that people are going to consume stuff. As I mentioned before, the overall significance of the New Deal, it doesn't really change anything. It just reaffirms that America, quote-unquote, works. We don't need to make any dramatic changes. Likewise, it uh, makes the Great Depression tolerable. I, you know, right now we're probably going through a hard time with a the pandemic. Uh, there's stuff you're probably doing, like binge-watching Netflix or whatever, that doesn't really, like, end the, the, the quarantine, but it makes it tolerable. Does that make sense? Like, you watching Netflix all day long doesn't really, like, help anybody get over the coronavirus, but it makes you being in quarantine tolerable. That's pretty much what the Great Depression was in regards to the New Deal. The New Deal does not solve the Great Depression. It makes it tolerable. So how we're going to blend it over into the next class, the next lecture, which is about these cuckoo banana pants dictators. Um, the Great Depression is bad in the United States, but it is significantly worse around the world, particularly in the countries that suffered from World War I. Uh, in addition to being expensive, in addition to costing money, wars destroy things, like by their very nature. And it can take a long time to recover from a war, particularly when the war was in your backyard. And when there's oppression where all the money that could be there has gone away, this might make you desperate. And next class, we're going to talk about what happens whenever countries get desperate.